Lord, we pray that in this season you will touch our hearts with your healing grace. Enable us to break free from any and all kinds of hurts or bondages and enable us to grow, to be planted by the streams of living waters and to grow in grace, in love, in the fruit of the Spirit. This is what we ask, God, that this congregation, this body of Christ that meets here will be flourishing, will be your instrument of grace, that free flow, that channel of your blessing and that there be no blockages. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, end of August, uh, we had a diaconate retreat and uh, we played snakes and ladders. Okay, it was, it was devised by uh, Pastor Kat Leong and Jiming together, so they came up with this. And so you play the snakes and ladders when you hit a certain number there is a question that comes to you. Uh, so, uh, Elder Edwin Chua hit this number, and any of us could ask him any question, and he's got to answer truthfully. So one wisecrack said, Edwin, how much money do you have? And he had to answer truthfully. I won't tell you the answer. <laughs> and then I got one. I got one. And the question says, why do you love your church? So my answer was very fast and instantaneous. I have to. I'm the senior pastor. But you think about it. You know, I, I always like to say, I'm not stupid, as stupid as I look. <laughs> and I don't think the answer is as stupid as it sounds. It's sort of like the equivalent of, do you love the girl you marry or do you marry the girl you love? Right? Do you attend the church you, you love or do you love the church that you attend? Because we have a relationship and a commitment. I am part of PPH and PPH is part of me. And we are the body of Christ. And I'm not going to leave PPH without a very good reason and without God's approval and blessings. So that's the kind of thought that went through uh, uh, my mind. In America, uh, you know, you've heard of this very famous Barna group. They, they do all kinds of research on, on religious matters. And the research tells us that one every year, one in seven adults in America changes church. They move to another church. One in seven, 14%. And every year, one out of six adults attend a carefully chosen handful of churches on a rotating basis. So perhaps they would like identify four or five churches, and these are my churches. They will go on a rotating uh, basis, and that is kind of like a buffet spread, right? So today is PPH, next Sunday it will be some, some other church and you get a nice buffet. And, and this is the, the well-known phenomenon of uh, what is called church hopping, or some people call it church shopping. And did you know that I found out in America, it's not just the members, the pastors leave the church or hop to another church at about the same rate about, what is it, 14, 15%. Every year, the pastors change. And, and my own worst experience in, in PPH, and I'm very embarrassed to say this, is that we had uh, uh, welcomed in uh, a pastor, and uh, this pastor left us after two weeks. And then somebody asked me, hey, didn't you guys pray before you brought in this pastor? 
last one does, of course we pray. This pastor also prayed. And we all felt like the Lord has led us uh, to this. And, and the normal procedure is we will always ask an incoming, uh, not just pastor, any worker, uh, have you fully resolved uh, any issues you might have with your previous church? Have you brought proper closure before you come and join us? I will also call the, pre the previous church and I find, find out how is this person and, and uh, any other outstanding issues to, to resolve. And when you make such a call, you need real discernment, right? It's like if the person on the other end of the line says, you will be very fortunate if you can get this person to work for you. What does it mean? Okay, there are two meanings there. So when you call the pastor or whoever on the other side, you're going to be very, very discerning. And maybe we, we, we lack that discernment. <laughs> so this person joined us and two weeks later left. But we should be committed to a local body of, of believers to be built up ourselves and to build up others. To, as the Bible says, to be edified and to edify in faith, in hope, in love and in PPH we have a membership covenant, a membership commitment, and I guess many of us would have forgotten what it is. I don't have time to get into everything, but just want to let you know that it is in our membership. Uh, uh, what is it? A membership guide, uh, a thing that we use. We call it M1. This is the same book, a uh, booklet that we use for baptism classes to to explain to people what is the meaning of baptism, communion, what does it mean to be a member of of a church, and and. Uh, the stuff is, is in here. I'll read it very quickly through. It says, Having received Christ as my Lord and Savior and been baptized and being in agreement with PPH statements and strategies and, and structure, I now feel led by the Holy Spirit to unite with the PPH church family. And in doing so, I commit to God and to the other members of the church to the following. I'll safeguard the unity of my church by da-da-da-da, a lot of things. Everyone has a biblical verse. I will share the responsibility of my church and uh, by praying, by inviting the unchurched, by warmly welcoming people in the church, I will serve the ministry of the church by being myself equipped to serve, by developing a servant's heart, by discovering my gifts and my talents, and then I will support the testimony of, of my church. And all the biblical verses are there. It is very biblical. Okay, go check it out. Check out the, the verses. It is also very logical because you, while we are the members of a universal church over the whole globe, we need to have fellowship within a smaller uh, local body of believers. And this is what PPH is, the body of Christ that meets in number three, Pasir Panjang Hill, Singapore 118827. What is, what is church? What is church? Church is something that God puts together. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 from verse 18. It says, But in fact, God has arranged the parts uh, in the body, in the church, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, 
so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. It's God who puts us together. Verse 18 says, God has arranged the parts in the body, and therefore, we better seek His approval if we want to do any rearrangement. Right? It makes sense. And does God know that we in this church here in PPH or in any church will offend one another and will be offended by another part of the body? Some joker might put his smelly feet into your nose that we will be offended and you might stick your finger into somebody's eye and offend somebody. Does God know that that will happen? Does God know that we are sinners saved by grace? Sure He does. And that is why God wants me to be a committed to a local church. And we'll get to the reason why later. There is a reason for this. God has arranged sinners like you and I to be in this one body. And if you are a, a new believer or if you have just moved from uh, one country to Singapore or you have moved from the eastern side of Singapore to the western side, then I think a, a short period of prayerful church Okay, college shopping, church shopping, I think is very necessary, right? You look around, which are, uh, what you think God wants to bring, which church you think God wants to bring you to, and then you decide, and then you commit. And then I found this, uh, as I was just searching the internet, I found this in the Singapore Expat Forum, okay? They post their, their stuff uh, in, in this internet forum, and I believe it was a lady who said, we were shopping, uh, we were church hopping over the last eight years and looking for a good church for my kids and found a good church. won't tell you the name, but I said, but most of the teachers there seem to be from international schools in Singapore. Okay, so this must be an expat lady who came here. Her children, I don't know, five years old. So they church hopped for eight years and finally they found this great church. Eight years. Eight years. I think you can safely say that she was a spiritual vagabond for eight long years. What is a vagabond? The, the, the online Merriam-Webster dictionary defines it as a person who is moving from place to place without a fixed home. Or it relates to the characteristic of a wanderer. And the negative internet... Uh, uh, negative connotations are that, that this person is leading an unsettled, irresponsible, or even disreputable life. And that's the meaning of, of vagabond. And I think that if you have been church hopping for eight years, I think it refers to you. This word vagabond was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 4. After the son of Adam and Eve, Cain, killed his younger brother, Abel. Who put this family together? God did. God put Adam and Eve together. They gave birth to Cain and Abel. And Cain messed up the Adam family. Okay, this is the Adam with one D, not the, the other Adam's family. Okay. And Cain messed up what God put together in the Adam's family. And then God said with a broken heart, which we will, which we will read later, that you, a fugitive and a vagabond, 
you shall be on the earth to Cain. Genesis chapter 4, verse 12. So we might want to ask ourselves, why do people leave a church? Why do people want to uh, change a church? Um, maybe relocation, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you moved in from, I don't know, America to here, or you moved from, from Pasiris to Pasipanjang, and then you want to look for a church closer to home. Maybe some people will say, I, I was not fed in my, in my last church. I was not filled. Or some will say, no fuel, lah, no fuel. I don't feel the presence of God in my last church. Or, or this church is, is embarking on an expensive building program. I don't think we need such a big church. I don't think we need such an expensive church building. Uh, I don't agree with the way the money is spent in that, church, in, that, in that church, and that's why I leave it. Or someone might say that, you know, I stopped going to church for three Sundays, and nobody knew, and nobody called me. The pastor didn't visit me. Or, or my voice is not heard. The music is so loud, I cannot hear myself singing. Or when I gave a suggestion, nobody bothered. The pastor didn't listen to me. Or I'm upset with someone or something. And this really is a problem church. That's why I'm leaving it. And, and just last week, I, I learned something. that <coughs> There is not such a thing as a problem child. It's a child with problems. Likewise, there isn't so much of a problem church, but a church with problems. A and every church has problems. So maybe in your cell group, you can discuss what are legitimate and what are non-legitimate reasons for, for leaving a church. But today, I just want to talk about one possible reason. And that possible reason is that I have been offended by a spiritual leader. I believe the same principles that we discussed today uh, might, might be applicable to other non-legitimate reasons for people leaving uh, a church or church hopping. And let's look at uh, some cases of, of people being offended by a leader. We'll come back to Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Big brother Cain, who used to play with his cute little brother Abel. If you had told Cain, hey Cain, one day, uh, one day you will kill your little brother Abel, he would have killed you for saying something ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous. Why would I kill my little brother? But why was Cain so angry that he killed his little brother? His offering to God was not looked upon with favor, while his little brother's offering was looked upon with favor. Okay, it's, it's about produce of the land, and it's about a sacrifice, but it's more than that. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that it's about faith. He did not have faith, but his brother had faith, and so he got offended. Who offended Cain? I don't think it was Abel. It was the ultimate spiritual leader. I think Cain was offended by God. He took offense against God. And since you cannot do anything against God, you do it to your brother. And that's why he killed his brother. Because he took matters into his own bloody hands. Offended by the ultimate leader. And you note the sorrow in God's voice in these words. Let me read to you Genesis 4, uh, verse 10. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work on the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You 
will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Sometimes we read these verses like, God going to curse Cain. But I think as the ultimate leader, as the ultimate father, I think it was with a broken heart as he said these words to Cain. And Cain became a spiritual vagabond. Ruthless, restless. Another example would be Saul and Ahimelech and the priests in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now in those days we know that the priests are community leaders. They are like the RC chairman, okay, or the chairman of the community centre. And spiritual and communi community leaders, they sometimes resolve disputes. But King Saul, King Saul was very upset with the priest Ahimelech because the priest provided food for David and his men. David and his men were being uh, 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 persecuted and, and hunted down by King Saul. And Ahimelech even provided a sword for, for David, the same sword that David had used to chop off the neck of Goliath. And he even prayed for David and his men. He inquired of the Lord for David and became the intercessor for David and his men. And when King Saul was asking Ahimelech to, to, to show him where David and his men were so that he can go and kill them, Ahimelech answered this way in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 14. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? He was bringing reason to King Saul. But King Saul got so offended that David was, was uh, being cheered by his people. David has, uh, uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And that jealousy and the offense was so great in his heart, he probably said to Ahimelech, who are you to talk to me like that? Priest or no priest, I got to let you know today who is boss. And as boss, he killed all 85 priests in that city called Nob. And not only that, his, his anger, his fury was so great that he killed everything. All the women, the children, all the animals even in that city of Nob. You know that six chapters earlier, the Bible tells us that the spirit departed from Saul. He was already a spiritual vagabond, ruthless, restless, spiritless. And what a great wrong he did out of a small offense. One of your kakis who managed to chop off the head of someone and who was great in battle, who was the, the, the leader of your, your bodyguard, your own son-in-law. He took offense against his own son-in-law. And then we come to David and Saul. Two instances here, one in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where again King Saul took 3,000 men to look for David. And they went to this place called En Gedi, which is a famous tourist place now where you can go and dip yourself into the Dead Sea. Lots of mountains there, lots of holes to hide out. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, somewhere around there. And Saul was resting in a cave. 
and he was relieving himself, the Bible says, he was peeing. And David crept up to Saul. It's got to be in the middle of the night, I think. And he snipped off a part of Saul. Not a body part, but a corner of his robe. And after that, what happened? 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of King Saul's robe. And he said to his men, King David said to his men, uh, oh no, David, not yet king that time, said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him. For he is the anointed of the Lord, anointed as king. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in that cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand, my hand will not touch you. As the saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. I think it's self-explanatory. He put Saul as the, the Lord's anointed. He respected that position that Saul had, no matter what bad thing Saul had done. It was God who anointed Saul as king. And it was God who has not yet gave permission for David to be king. And so I'm not going to touch him. Two chapters later, in chapter 26, practically the same thing happened again. And King Saul was still chasing David around, still seeking to take his life. You know, you talk about forgiving seven times in a day. Now you forgive the, the second time in, uh, in two chapters. Okay, I don't know how long that time period was. Or, or 70 times 7, you forgive when somebody wrongs you. This is it. And it looks like King David, uh, no, I keep saying, he, not yet king at that time, that he and his men were like the ultimate ninjas or, or, or commandos. You know? They are always able to creep up to, to Saul very, very close to him. And, and David and one of his men, actually his, um, his, uh, uh, his nephew, Abishai, crept up to where Saul was sleeping. The last time he was peeing, now he was sleeping, but David was able to creep up right up to him and stole his spear and stole his water jug. It was very hot there. And, and then Abishai, David's nephew and one of his three division commanders, would have been the two-star general okay, in our time, wanted to kill Saul. We've got the opportunity. Now let's get rid of this problem. What did King David do? Or what did David do? 1 Samuel 26, verse 9. David said to Abishai, his nephew, 
his division commander, don't destroy him. Who can lay on the Lord, a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his hand and let's go. Second time he spared his life. Second time he had mercy. And second time he gave, um, he, he did not touch the Lord's anointed. He respected that spiritual position that um, King Saul had. Didn't take matters in his own hand, recognized spiritual authority. He left room for God to judge. Vengeance was God, not his. And now I want to come to a non-biblical story. And for those of you who might have read this book, The Bait of Satan, it's about John Bevere himself, the author. And John Bevere tells this story about himself, that he was a staff, he was like the youth pastor <coughs> in a very large church with many uh, staff positions. And his immediate supervisor, maybe one of the deputy senior pastor or something like that, didn't like John very much and was determined to fire him. And so this deputy senior pastor brought false accusations against John to the senior pastor, uh, murmuring that, uh, that John was not good in this and that, and then turning around and telling John that, John that the senior pastor was not happy with John for this and that. So he was like stirring strife between two uh, different parties. And when he wanted to, to scold John Bevere, he would send a memo or an email to everybody, but not specifically to John, but the contents of that email or memo makes it very clear that it was John. So that refusal to confront John Bevere directly. And then the rumors were spreading that John Bevere was about to be sacked. And so John approached his supervisor, this maybe is a deputy senior pastor, and said, why, why are you doing this? And this guy says that I'm just repeating what I know the senior pastor is thinking and that you are about to be sacked. <laughs> John at that time had a pregnant wife. He had just moved into town. So he uh, bought a house in that place to serve in the church. And the stress was, was very, very high. And then later, John had some black and white evidence, possibly a memo or an email that would expose this deputy senior pastor and he was preparing to present it to the senior pastor the next morning to expose what this crafty guy was, was doing. But the next morning, he struggled in prayer. He said, for 45 minutes. And he said, I told God, God, this man is dishonest. He's wicked. He needs to be exposed. He is a destructive force in this ministry. And I'm just presenting the facts to the senior pastor. It is not emotional on my side. I'm just presenting facts to the senior pastor. But as he was struggling that 45 minutes, he then blurted out in the midst of that prayer time, he said, God, you don't want me to expose him, do you? The moment he said those words, he said that peace flooded his heart. He actually threw the evidence away. And now, with hindsight, John Bevere says, he realized that he wanted revenge. He wanted revenge more than he wanted to protect the ministry. It was a problem of the heart. 
and that his motives were not as selfless as he had thought. And one day, <coughs> the supervisor, the deputy, deputy senior pastor's car passed by, <coughs> and John was outside the church just before the church opened, and he heard this whisper from the Spirit. It says, go and humble yourself before the deputy senior pastor. <coughs> no way! No way! This guy has been harming me. He should come to me to apologize to me. I cannot go and humble myself before him. But he exercised the obedience and he went and he went to this guy. And can you imagine John went to this guy and asked for forgiveness? For what? For forgiveness for his critical and judgmental spirit over the deputy senior pastor. And so the guy began to soften a little bit and they talked for one hour. And then, since then, he says, the kind of attack that he has been getting from this deputy senior pastor stopped. Six months later, while John was out of the country, he received news that the deputy senior pastor was sacked. He was finally exposed. And the evidence that exposed the deputy senior pastor was worse than John had imagined and worse than the evidence that he himself had, which he threw away later. So he got fired. And so John says, judgment has come, but not by my hand. And, and now John was not happy that this guy was fired because he was thinking of his wife and his children. And he grieved. And he grieved like God grieved over Cain. So he had that God-like spirit in his heart after all. One year later, he saw this guy at an airport. And overwhelmed with God's love, he went to approach this man, the ex deputy senior pastor. He said, if I had never gone to him six months before and humbled myself before him, I would not be able to look him in the eye at the airport that day. But now he was able to. And he felt a sincere love for this man and want to see him doing God's will after repentance. So something beautiful came out of that, that Deputy senior pastor who is wicked, who is evil, but he treated him as the Lord's anointed, as David treated Saul. And did not want to exercise judgment, did not want to take revenge. And all these things happened. <coughs> it was a beautiful, edifying, a built-up ending. So what is the takeaway? Respect authority, do not take revenge, leave it to God, examine your own heart. I think fairly straightforward. What might we have done? What might I have done? We might have shared in what I call a gossip prayer. In one word, right? G-O-S-S-I-P-R-A-Y-E. Gossip prayer. And what's a gossip prayer? It's like we gossip and we disguise it as a prayer request. Right? So you're going to pray for me. Uh, my deputy senior pastor, uh, you're going to pray for the deputy senior pastor. You know, he did this and he did that. And... and you don't talk to the deputy senior pastor, but you talk among your own group and you gossip and you gossip and you call it a prayer request. That's what we might have done or we might have taken revenge into our own hands and all that. But why is life so difficult among Christians? If we are all Christians, why doesn't God just program us after conversion to never offend anyone and never be offended by anyone, especially leaders? Why doesn't God just fill us with the Holy Spirit, make us non-offenders and non-offendees? 
you know, from the anguish of King David and John Bevere, you can see out of that horrible situation something sprouting out of dry ground, as it were. It sprout out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Sprout out the fruit of the Spirit. You know, God gives us the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, the word of knowledge, healing. And that is to edify the church, to build up the church. God wants us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. For what? Also to edify the church. He gives gifts, but He expects fruit of the Spirit to grow from us. To grow from a church filled with sinners like you guys out there and this guy up here. He wants us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit and He wants sinful church members to help one another to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And so we see the love of John Bevere for his supervisor and his supervisor's family. It wasn't natural. It's not a natural love. Naturally, he should have taken revenge. Taken revenge. It was not natural. It was divine. It grew out of disappointment and persecution. And he was able to prove the word of God true. Love those who hate you. 1 Peter 4 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers. Love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 17 9 also says, He who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. That was love that you saw from King David, from John Bevere. We didn't see that from Saul, and we didn't see that from Cain. And we see joy, joy that was not dependent on, on circumstances. The circumstances were horrific, it was terrible for, for David to be uh, a fugitive. And for John Bevere, with a pregnant wife and, and a new mortgage, uh, constantly afraid of being sacked. But David was able to continue to worship with joy, with psalms written by him. We see the peace of God. And the Word of God says the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Okay, it's, it's not understandable that, that while your wife is pregnant and, and you have a new mortgage on the house and you're about to get sacked and you're not supposed to say anything to defend yourself, that where is the peace in that? But there was a peace. And there is even peace when you're running from cave to cave and begging for food from a priest. That peace just sprouts out from dry land. And we see patience in bearing pain. That as the master potter is shaping you with, with, with all these kinds of persecution and difficult circumstances, that patience rises up. David was already anointed king as a young boy. Years ago, but not yet king. He waiting, waited in patience before that moment when he was supposed to be king, after Saul. Didn't take matters in his own hands. We see kindness in both David and Saul, uh, David with Saul and John Bevere with his supervisor. We see goodness in the heart of those who are able to be humble, to set aside pride 
and the need for revenge, we see faithfulness of men towards imperfect leaders, respecting their spiritual authority. And hence, the faithfulness of God in judgment and in righteousness. And don't you just see the gentleness, that gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, as you see the reactions of David and John Bevere. And finally, self-control. Don't take things into your own hands. Leave room for God to work. Hold back what is so bursting out in our heart that revenge, expose this guy, get him down. That is real self-control. Now let me ask you, how, how will you grow if you simply hop from one church to another, everything, every time I or some leader in PPH does or says something stupid to offend you? How are you going to grow? And how will I grow if, if all of you just hop, 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 hop to some other church uh, every time I offend you and I don't even know about it? There is no closure. I can tell you now that I've got many, many more, more offenses up my sleeve as a, <laughs> as a sinful pastor. Right? Sometimes I blurt out words, sometimes I say something, sometimes my, my facial expression is not quite uh, what you were expecting, and, and then you get offended. And many, many offenses are, are, are to come. And how will you grow and how will I grow if we don't tackle this? So lastly, I want to talk about about closure and, and how to seek closure. What does the lack of closure lead to? It leads to vagabondism, if there's such a word. That you become ruthless, you become restless, you are unable to grow the fruit of the Spirit. And I think of uh, an example like, like in, in divorce. And I think proper closure really can only happen uh, if it goes with, with the Bible that, oh yes, there has been, there has been uh, adultery and even as you try to seek for forgiveness and closure, it has not happened, therefore you divorce, then there's a proper closure there. That and then you can move on. But many, many divorces and many, many uh, disputes between people do not have closure. Uh, from divorces, we have statistics, okay? Others we may not have. So the statistics, as I found out, was those who got married the first time in America, okay, all these are from America, roughly 50% get divorced, okay, it's as terrible as that, right? One in two marriages end up in divorce in America. Then you get married again. You ought to be smarter this time, right? You ought to have learned something. But the, in the second marriage, the divorce rate is higher than 50%. It is 67%. And then you get smarter. They say, okay, okay, my first husband was horrible. My second husband was horrible. Uh, now I've learned something. Okay, I married the third time. And the third time you get divorced. What is that rate? 73%. It goes up. It doesn't come down. People don't learn. Why? I think because there is a lack of closure. I wish there were statistics for, for church members, you know. Uh, first church, second church, and, and or whatever, but we, we don't have that. Because there is fissure, splits, cracks, and no closure. And I think it works the same in church hopping. The more you hop, the more you need to hop. 
So we, we become spiritual bunnies, I think. How to seek closure? Let me refer you to two passages of scripture, both found in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 from verse 21. Jesus said, you have heard, it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, or idiot, or scoundrel, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, the religious council. But anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. And therefore, if you are offering your gift in the altar, offering a song of worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. It's, it's a very hazy term that is used here. I tried to search the Greek and all that. If your brother has something against you, it doesn't say, is it a terrible sin? It is uh, uh, an, an offensive statement that is um, not true. It just says something against you. It's so generic. But if in your mind, spirit led you to think of someone who has something against you, then it's better don't worship. Don't offer any gift at the altar. Go and set it, sort it out first. This is the word of God. Seek closure first. Okay, then there's another one. Matthew chapter 18. From verse 15. If your brother, this time is, is a bit clearer, sins. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. Okay, I repeat. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take two, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And this is the context, okay? It's not the two of you come together and agree that God should give you a BMW and it will be done for you. It is in the context of disputes and somebody sinning against you. You know, there's a very special dynamic. That's why I repeated that, that, that phrase, just between the two of you. There's a very special, and I believe it's a divine dynamic, uh, a, a spiritual principle, just between the two of you. That if you only would, just between the two of you, come together and sort it out, then there is a strong, uh, I think, function from God to help you. If you agree, it will be bound on earth as it will be bound in heaven. If you agree, it will be done for you. But this is the very... That's okay, it, you, can, you can have a, a, a big sermon on this, but we get stuck just between the two of you. That's why we get stuck. Because we, we'd rather go into a gossip prayer, right? If somebody has offended me, 
uh, especially a spiritual leader, then I say, let's pray for him. You know, Let me meet with my cell group when I gossip, 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 and, and say all the bad things about this guy, but in the guise of praying for him. Where the first thing you ought to do is go directly, one-on-one, just between the two of you, as John Bevere did with this guy, as uh, David and Saul tried to sort out matters between them. You can't get past step one. So let's not talk about bringing it to the church and one or two witnesses and all that. Okay, that can be some separate sermon uh, in, at a future time. We can't get past step one to approach the brother or the sister just between the two of you. In fact, we, we instead of exercising obedience, we exercise active disobedience. No way! No way! I'm not going to see him. I'm going to avoid him or her. In fact, we might not even talk about it or gossip about it. I'm very spiritual. I don't gossip. I just bury it. Bury it deep. But brothers and sisters, it will resurface. Anything that has no closure, it will resurface. And often it resurfaces in a very ungodly and unwholesome way. It might even be stomach ulcers or sickness or amnesia. uh, Not amnesia. Insomnia. (laughs) Insomnia. (laughs) Amnesia is good. (laughs) You can just forget it. It, it will resurface or it will just block block you from being able to grow in patience or being able to grow in love and you will not have joy. You know, it's just going to mess up the fruit of the Spirit. So can we be humble like David or John Bevere and seek that closure, that one-on-one? When you have that closure, you will have a rested root instead of a restless rootlessness. That's what God is teaching us. And when you are rooted, what happens is this beautiful psalm in Psalm 92 verse 12. It says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, they will stay fresh and green. So are you planted in the house of the Lord? Are you planted in your own cell group or, 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 or PPH church? And are you growing and flourishing, bearing fruit even in old age? Or have we become more and more cranky, more and more sensitive, more and more harboring bitterness in our heart as we grow old? No, bearing spiritual fruit in old age, staying fresh and green because we are not spiritual vagabonds. We are planted in the house of the Lord. Lastly, I just want to share with you um, a story about John Bevere's son. Okay, so John Bevere's story we know. Uh, Of course, it's a very good story. There may be other times in his life where he did not act so, uh, uh, responded so well. Um, this came from another book that, that John wrote and his son's name is Edison Edison, nine years old and Edison came home and said that the teacher or one teacher was picking on him and this teacher sent a disciplinary note to John and his wife uh, saying that Edison was, was talking too much in class and creating disorder in class 
And the son came up crying and said, but it's not just me. Everybody was doing it. Why only I had this disciplinary uh, uh, note sent to my parents and put into my report book as a record, like a, a criminal record. Everybody had, has done it, but why me? So John asked the son, so what do you do when you think you have been falsely accused? Edison said, nine years old, I stood up for my rights. I challenged the teacher. I said he was wrong. And John said, you have a choice. You can continue to stand up for yourself and remain under your teacher's judgment, or you can realize that you have not responded to these accusations, true or false, in a godly manner. You can go to the teacher and apologize for being disrespectful and resisting his authority, or you can continue challenging it. And then Edison said, but what do I do when I'm blamed for something I didn't do? And John said, when you challenge the teacher and you defend yourself, has it worked so far? No. Hasn't worked, got worse. And, God, and, and, and John said, then you need God to defend you. So the next day, Edison, nine years old, went to the teacher and apologized. And, and don't justify about, yeah, I didn't do wrong, and teacher, you were wrong, the facts were all wrong, and all that. He just apologized for challenging the teacher and the teacher's authority, and he asked for forgiveness. Weeks later, he was student of the week. <laughs> you see? So, my point to you today is, perhaps this week is a time for you to do what John or his son Edison or what David did. Something I would call very heroic. Very heroic. And something that you cannot do without God. This one-on-one -on -one thing. Seeking forgiveness. And, and don't bother to, 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 you know, get a lawyer in and write the pros and cons and the, the your wrong and my wrong. and Not, not that, that part, okay? I, I know it hurts you a lot uh, and that you have all the facts ready to show why you are right and the other person is wrong, forget about that part first, okay? Think about your own heart for, for being disrespectful, for, for judgmentalism, for what is in your heart about revenge and you want the guy to die. You know, you are, you are almost about able to kill 85 priests all at one go. That, that kind of thing. Think about that part and apologize for that part. See what happens. See if what happened to David what happened to John Bevere, his son, might also happen to you. It may not, right? The circumstances might get even worse, but you know you're doing the right thing, right? You are leaving vengeance uh, to God. You are not being judgmental. But you have tackled your own heart and you have closed up that, 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 that wound. You have sought closure per Matthew chapter 5, per Matthew chapter 18. So think about that as I ask the musicians to come. Or maybe it's not necessary for you, right? You have sought closure, you have lived uh, uh, a good Christian life obeying the Word of God uh, per Matthew chapter 5 and per Matthew chapter 18. But, but don't forget that it is impossible that no offenses should come. And some point in the future, it will happen. So I think it is good for us to make that decision right now that if it should come, if it should ever happen to me, then I want very, very short accounts. I will tackle it one-on-one -on -one first. One-on-one, -on -one, I will go and approach a person and seek forgiveness. And, and especially 
if it is a spiritual leader. Okay, it's very difficult for me to say this. To say, oh, I am the Lord's anointed, <laughs> and therefore you all must, you know, respect authority. But, but, it's inside the Bible. <laughs> it's inside the Bible, and, and tackle it from that angle. And then I think if that should ever happen to me, then I will surely break down, and I will, I will see the, the error of my ways uh, if I've offended anyone. Forget about the rights and wrongs and the facts and the and the and all that, and look at our own heart first. And seek that closure. Okay, let's stand up and sing two choruses that I hope will will allow our spirit to express in a song um, this aspect of of our heart. Change be broken, lies be Change be broken. 
Spirit will give you the strength, the courage to do what is necessary, what is right. I heard this comment uh, recently that, oh, this bit of Satan is so emo. Yes, but I think also very essential to seek closure. And I pray that each one of us, if that should be, any fissure, anything that is cracked or split open and unwholesome, that you would take that necessary essential step of seeking closure, that you would do this one-on-one -on -one thing, as difficult as can be, really, really difficult, and that we would pray and ask God, the Holy Spirit, for strength to enable us to take that initiative to see if the word of the Lord is true. See if it might break the bondage that you've been suffering from and something wonderful will come out that out of that very hardened and dry ground sprout out the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, thank you for speaking to us your word that is spirit and truth and life grant to us life, abundant life, the life that is filled with the fruit of the Spirit, that we are planted in the house of the Lord, no offense. Enable us to seek closure, enable us to be set free, to grow the fruit of the Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name.